0: Vasily Matrokin walked into the U.S. Embassy in Riga, Latvia in 1992 and tried to defect. He was turned away. CIA officials who handled defectors, overwhelmed at the time by hundreds of Russians trying to get to the West, said they were not interested. Matrokin was not a spy, after all, just essentially a librarian. Paul Redmond, then head of CIA counterintelligence, argued to bring Matrokin in. No one listened. So Matrokin went to the British Embassy in Latvia, where after long discussion, he was allowed to defect. This is probably one of the most, if not the most important defector that I've seen in the 20th century. Matrokin had been in charge of the KGB's top secret archives. Angry with his government's constant lies to its people, he began secretly taking notes on what he was reading, smuggling those notes out of KGB headquarters in his socks or trousers. For more than a decade, he buried the accumulating paper in trunks under his house. When he defected, the British helped Matrokin smuggle six trunks of his notes out of Russia. He is absolutely unique. John Martin, former Justice Department espionage prosecutor, said until now, Matrokin and his secret files have been one of the West's most closely guarded secrets. A lot of the information was like reading the other side's uh, mail. To simply, you know, learn what the enemy has been doing all these years in such detail and such volume and such accuracy is very amazing. He now lives in a safe house in Britain. Officials assume he still has a price on his head, but Matrokin insisted that some of his work be made public, and it will in a book to be published next week. For the FBI, Matrokin provided a chance to re-energize espionage cases that had been dormant for decades. There were hundreds of cases or leads opened. Robert Bear Bryant, deputy director of the FBI, said Matrokin's files helped fill in the blanks of many old espionage puzzles. Basically, in a lot of areas, it gave you the border pieces to the puzzle, and uh, some of it gave you the, the heart of it too. You have no doubt that this is this guy was the real thing. None. Matrokin's information helped to convict Robert Lipka of espionage in 1996. He had spied for the Soviets in the late 1960s when he worked as a clerk at the National Security Agency. Matrokin's files may not be in putting spies behind bars, but in the sweeping detail they provide of what the Soviets were up to during the last decades of the Cold War.
1: Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on for this week's podcast. Uh, His name is Jack Barsky, and he's the author of a book called Deep Undercover, Uh, My Secret Life, and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America. Uh, Jack, uh, thank you for coming on the show.
2: Well, my pleasure. Um, I, I wouldn't have know what to, known what to do with the next hour if you hadn't uh, reached out to me. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so, I, you know, when, when I first reached out, you know, I mentioned that I'd uh, listened to an audio version of your book uh, about a year ago, a year and a half or so. Um, and then I, when I was done with the book, you know, in the back of my head, I was like, one day I would like to have him on the show and um and then at the time i wasn't doing a bunch of podcasts and then maybe the last couple of months I've, I've been really busy with podcasting and stuff and i watched you um i forget where i don't remember if it was cnn or uh, I, I watched you on some network recently you know giving your take on on events in, in russia and ukraine and that prompted me to to reach out and um so i'm, I'm really happy to to talk to you today um So obviously there's a ton going on, uh, in the world and in particular with Russia and Ukraine and, and, um, you know, uh, the, the sort of alliance that's aligned against Russia, um, many former Soviet States, um, you were in the KGB, uh, you know, spying and, um, you know, you, you were undercover in the U.S. for a number of years, um, and uh, you know, so y- your book is fantastic. I-, I recommend people get it, get a copy of it. Like I mentioned before, it's called Deep uh, Undercover uh, by Jack Barsky. Um, so, you know, w- we'll get into what's happening today uh, with Russia and Ukraine, but can we start with sort of uh, where you come from, and then if you can kind of walk us through how you ended up working in the KGB?
2: Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm I'm going to give the short version because the long version is is a lot longer. The book has uh, 320 some odd pages. Uh, And uh, I had more material. The the editor cut about 50 pages because he said, "You, you know, people don't buy really thick books. Okay, it doesn't matter. So anyway. Uh, and if, uh, if if I start rambling, then feel free to interrupt me. So I was born a, a, in 1949. Um, that was four four years after the end of World War II, and I was born into a, a territory that was Soviet occupied and eventually became in Germany, and eventually became the German Democratic Republic. Uh, there's an, the only thing that's uh accurate in this uh three letter uh name the three word name is german it was neither democratic nor a republic it was a communist dictatorship uh and so i grew up in under communism and uh there was a lot of brainwashing going on a lot of uh, uh you know you have to just uh step uh step be in in, in lockstep With the the rulers, and there were no, there were no other opinions allowed. Uh, There was no the, no no dialogue about the truth. The truth was just uh, fed us uh, over and over again, and not just uh, in theory like Marxism-Leninism, but also in the arts and in literature and in the movies. I mean, we were drowning in communist ideology. With that said, uh, we did get a really good education, and it was actually uh, acknowledged by folks who knew what they're talking about, as opposed to West Germany, which was uh, you know, a capitalistic type society. Uh, actually, we came out ahead uh, with regard to how well educated we left the school system, and it was hard but, uh, hard because there were no electives and it was hardcore, lots and lots of science. And uh, I have the curriculum of my last year in high school and half the subjects were math and science and uh, everybody had to take them. And if you, if you weren't good at math, you had, you had a problem. Uh, and I was good at math. I was good at everything, and I, I, I sort of aced high school. I had nothing but A's in my on my last report card, and that got me into a good college. And I aced that program too. It was a four and a half year master's program in chemistry, and I got uh, I received because I was that good, and I I was very active in the communist youth youth movement. So I was an all around, uh, you know, the the right kind of person for the system who would, you know, go places. And uh, that caught the attention of the KGB. I I don't know if the Stasi East German secret police actually uh, shared my my, uh, files with the KGB or the KGB was just allowed to look at files that. the Stasi kept the uh, records on every adult in the country and regardless how they got the KGB got to this, when they looked at my profile, they said, we want to talk to this guy. That didn't mean anything yet. It means they wanted to talk, they wanted to talk to me and just figure out if I, if I have what it takes. And the, what it takes uh, was never made known to me, but they had a certain list of character traits that were necessary for somebody uh, to do the, the job, the lone wolf undercover job that is very stressful, that could, want, could wind you up in jail, that, that any, you, you had to be fearless. You had to have a really, really fast functioning brain, make good decisions, have no problem working. Without colleagues, I have no problem leaving the past behind and lying to everybody, including my mother, as to where I was going. Uh, so, so and they 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 worked with me and they watched me closely for a year and a half. I had a sort of a handler, but it was an unofficial relationship. We met once every two weeks. Uh, in an apartment where, a uh, conspiratorial flat. So that, uh, the, the, owner of that apartment left, so we could speak freely. And obviously it was, that was bug free. Uh, so, and, and, you know, he gave me some things to do. We talked about life. We talked about, uh, what it might be like to, to be, to be in, involved in espionage. And, uh, I just, was very honest with him from A to Z, you know, he he was probably 10 years older than me and he became sort of an ersatz father because my father was useless. He, uh, he was 18 years old when world war two ended and he had never had a chance to grow into a man emotionally grow into a man. And we never had a father son talk about anything. Uh, he managed to beat me up occasionally. So, but so, so this guy, you know, I, I, shared with him, everything that I would, would have shared with a functioning father. And I guarantee you, he took a lot of notes and eventually he said to, to himself, and then he, he notified uh, uh, headquarters in Berlin that I think I got a really good candidate. And um, that is when he sent me without telling me why, without you told me, you know, we, uh, you should go to Berlin for three weeks because, you know, there's you can work with somebody who has more experience in espionage than I do. So, you know, I went to Berlin knowing that I would get some more training uh, and I did. But the day before my last day in Berlin, uh, this fellow took me to a huge building. And uh, I, at the time, I didn't quite know what it was, but uh, later I found out it was the headquarters of the Soviet army in East Germany and headquarters of the KGB. And uh, he took me to an office and there was this little, little guy sitting behind the desk, uh, very, un, very uh, unimpressive. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I looked around, there was a statue of uh, the founder of the KGB uh, a Polish fellow named, uh, now the name escapes me. That's I, I have this problem. And like, sometimes I, when I need to say a name, it, it doesn't come out. And, and then I remember it's 10 minutes later. Anyway, he, he um uh, this fellow behind the desk was most likely the, uh, the head of the KGB in East Germany because of, uh, I, I, the way the other people in the room uh, addressed him with a patronum and with very much respect. And when he, this fellow opens his, his mouth, he just grew like several feet because his voice was very strong and uh, and he just said just a lot of phenomenal psychological presence. And then, you know, he started doing some small talk about, you know, that we need to uh you know do our best to avoid being invaded by by the bad capitalists and blah 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 and I didn't need any of that but but after 10 minutes he he um um switched hardcore 180 degrees and he just like just threw that sentence at me that question so are you in or are you not i was not prepared uh for that whatsoever i uh uh, I had played with the idea of, uh, of becoming a spy, and it was like, yeah, that's interesting, you know, but I don't know. what I mean, I, I had a phenomenal career ahead of me. I would have become a tenured professor at college be, because of my grades and, and, you know, my work in the party and, the, and in the youth movement. And that was, was a given. And in those days in East Germany, the tenured professors were far and few in between, and they were sort of the ruling class in town there was nobody higher up and and and, and there was nobody paid better so and you know i and i was also my my family at, at college was my basketball team so that would have been a, you know so i just like i never really pictured myself saying yes or having to answer that question so i i stalled i i didn't want to answer yes or no i wasn't ready uh and so i told him well i don't know i'm not really trained and I don't know if I qualify and he fired right back. He said, we know that you qualify and we will train you, but we only work with people who can make a decision, uh, be very decisive and, and very quick about it. So you have, uh, until noon tomorrow to give me an answer. Now, people always ask, could I have said, no, uh, without the punishment, absolutely because you don't press somebody in, into that kind of a job when you say no, then, then they, they, and it has to be voluntary. So if it's a no, I don't think that would have been any damage to me. Uh, so that made for a really sleepless night. And I was weighing the pluses and minuses, you know, the pluses were like I would be able to travel, uh, to the West, which most Eastern East, East Europeans were not allowed to, uh, I would, uh, I, I would have an adventure, and uh, I would be able to break all kinds of rules and laws because I never liked to be told what to do. I just uh, uh, I, I just wanted to do my own thing. and uh, and you know I, I would we had our version of of the the East German James Bond, who went to the west to fight uh, Nazis, and in the process also lived a good life, you know, fancy cars and nice homes and he you know he had a lot of pretty girls uh, that he interacted with so that that was all very uh alluring but you know the downside was i w- would have to i wouldn't have a career that i would have liked to have uh, i would have had to say goodbye to my mother uh but the basketball team was probably the the hardest one to to say goodbye to so i went back and forth and back and forth and eventually it was more of a feeling that was more of a subconscious decision that I just said, yes, sure. And within uh, three or four weeks, uh, I went to I resigned my job. I was an a assistant professor at the university at the time. And uh, my cover was I told the uh, folks and asked me, so what are you going to do? Oh, yeah, I'm going to work for the for the. Uh, secretary of state for the foreign ministry of East, East Germany. And I would become a diplomat and that played reasonably well. I told my mother the same thing. And, uh, so then I moved to Berlin and I got uh, two and a half years of training and I'm going to the, to the point where I'm, when, I'm, I'm finishing this particular part of the story, uh, two and a half years of training, uh, and, uh, Part of that training, I was required to learn a language fluently, one that uh, is used in a Western country. And they gave me a choice. And I picked English. And I said, you know, because English, I, I was so good at English. I had never had to study English in high school or in college. It's just like it uh, it, it was like, uh, you know, fish swimming in water. And I, I also was pretty good. At, and not talking like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and and, and already reducing the accent <laughs> with with which I spoke. So when when I said English, <clears throat> so they gave me money to uh, to uh, pay a tutor because I started from scratch. I had lost most of what I learned in school. And then I and after about uh, two maybe three months of getting me started, I got myself another tutor, and with this guy, we already had conversation, we had no more textbook. And, and I spent every day reading, at first newspapers, but then novels, and every word that I found that I didn't know, I wrote it down, and I spent every day, I spent a good hour and a half going through all the words and making sure that I remember them all. I don't want to get too much into the, the technique, but I, I used uh, uh, index cards. And, uh, and I re- and, and I repeated and I want sure that I knew the word, uh, that, uh, before I put the index card aside. And, um, uh, when, uh, we had a visitor from Moscow and maybe two years into my studies in Berlin, he he came to visit me in my apartment and he asked us, so, uh, how's your English coming? And I said, I pulled a book out of, from a shelf and I, Told him I can read this uh, without the dictionary, and he his eyes got really big, and he said, "Okay, uh, why don't we get you a tape recorder and you just say something, whatever you know, speak for 20 minutes." I did that, and as soon as as soon as that was in Moscow, the next day they they put me on a plane to Moscow. Somebody knew that they may have somebody really special, because to the idea was that if can this guy actually uh, reduce his accent to, uh, to a minimum where he can actually claim to have been born in the United States? Because the majority, I may have been the only one that they, they were able to send in that manner, because it is, uh, I mean, it's medically said impossible for somebody in their mid twenties to get rid of their, their accent because all the speech organs that, that are necessary to make certain sounds were already formed. And I read this in in literature, and I was was an exception. so in in Moscow, I had a conversation with a native born American a lady and and a, a professor who taught English at uh, Moscow University. She was Russian. And I, we talked about like for forty minutes, and their task was to answer the, the question does he have what it takes with some more practicing and the American said, yes. And the English person said no. And so wishful thinking one, uh, one over. And, uh, within a month I wound up in Moscow and the lady that had said yes was my tutor. And I, I spent two hours in her apartment, uh, two, uh, two, two hours, twice a week. And in the evening, Every evening I did 20, 25 minutes of phonetics exercises to listen to the spoken word and repeat it and listen and repeat. And uh, I got to a point when another, a male, a Native American who had spied for, he was actually a nuclear spy, uh, Morris Cohen, uh, I, I worked with him for quite a while and he got to a point where he said, you're ready. Uh, particularly you, 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 your accent is so minimal that in New York, nobody would pay attention to it. And if they did, uh, he didn't know that because that was kept secret. But, um, the birth certificate that I used, uh, was the stolen identity of Jack Barsky who passed away at the age of 11. Uh, on that birth certificate, the maiden name of Barsky's mother was Schwartz is Schwartz and that can be german so if somebody there were like a handful of people who you you sound like you, you sound like you might be european i said yeah that, that's not that's not a surprise to me i i, I grew up bilingual and so uh, in the fall of 1988 i uh, entered the united states with a false passport but within 2 weeks i D- destroyed that passport and uh, took the Barsky birth certificate out, out of a uh, secret compartment in my luggage and became Jack Barsky. It took me uh, about nine months to acquire <clears throat> the necessary documentation to work and live uh, in, in, in the United States. That was a driver's license and a social security card. That wasn't easy, but that's the reason that the KGB hired me because I made like, chicken salad out of chicken shit, whatever. I'm sorry, what, what, whatever instructions they w- were giving me out of go after to get these documents weren't working. So I had to improvise and find my way through uh, the problems and, and I succeeded. And I think uh, we can stop right here because this is, uh, you know, from the beginning to when I came to the US. If you have any more questions with regard what I did in the US, go right ahead
1: okay yeah I, I do have a, a couple of questions um so uh you know growing up in east germany um you know excelling in school and being part of the, the communist youth organization uh you know obviously as you mentioned there's a ton of propaganda that's being fed into the population at that time uh, did you fully believe in the communist you know ideology and vision and you know as a a person living in east germany
2: not a single doubt <clears throat> uh we were i took a course in college that was uh called uh, scientific marxism leninism and you know we believe that marx and Engels and lenin discovered the laws that uh, uh govern the the evolution of mankind and how how it went from slavery to uh, uh, an an agricultural time of uh, society in the Middle Ages, to capitalism, to socialism and communism. I believed in that. Now, I got to tell you, uh, it was comfortable believing in it because I was already like a star in high school. And uh, I had no reason to question anything that we were being fed because I was doing well in that system. <clears throat> and I, I honestly, I had no, no contact. I knew of nobody who had a problem with the government and had a problem with the Stasi. I just didn't know what the, the worst uh, thing I, I was aware of when I, when I grew up was the local butcher wound up in jail because he, he sold uh, you know, meat on the black market. Well, that, that was a crime, okay? So, um, it, it, it was just like, I just didn't question. One thing though, I'm, I got to tell you, one thing me and all the other smart comrades, you know, doctors, professors, and, and some students agreed on is that our leadership was really not up to the task. They were not smart enough. So we were all, we were always waiting for the right smart leaders to get to the head of uh, the government and and then rock and roll and really um, do better than than West Germany and so forth. Um, you know the f- the first page of the <clears throat> of the newspaper, the, the the national newspaper, which was the party paper almost nobody ever read was all bullshit propaganda and the first 20 minutes of the evening news on TV and nobody paid attention to them. We were just waiting for the weather and some maybe culture and the sports at the end. (laughs) So, so for some reason in your being smart, I thought the propaganda was, was, was necessary for all the dumb people and they, they, Maybe bought into this, but some of the leaders and some of the smarter people, like uh, fellow students of mine, believed in all that propaganda. I just ignored it. I know, I know the real truth was in the writings of Marx, Engels, and Lenin, and uh, if we followed that, uh, we would, we would be okay.
1: Okay. Um, so then, another question I have is, you know, obviously the the Soviet Union was vast, and um, you know there were several different sort of ethnic groups that fell under that like it wasn't just Russians obviously um is this something that you were aware of or, or maybe you found out later like would the no no, or- no
2: no 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 that that was that was quite clear there were 15 <clears throat> republics but and and then all of them had a majority Majority ethnic group, but some of them had multiple ethnic groups. It was a vast country, and you know, Moscow wasn't even halfway in. You know, beyond Moscow and Siberia, it, it, this is as, as far as land mass is concerned, by far the largest country. Russia is by far mm-hmm. the largest country in the world, and and the, the the Soviet Union had Ukraine, and they had the Baltic republics, and they had Asian Repu- republics. It was humongous. <clears throat> and, uh, uh, the, the, furthest I ever came, uh, I once had a, a, a visit to Armenia that was after, after I, I was in really bad shape when, <clears throat> when I, when a, a dentist in a KGB cli- clinic, pulled one of my wisdom teeth and used, they didn't have Novocaine they used some kind of a mild sedative and it was painful as heck. So, and this was just before I was supposed to be launched to the U S. So I, uh, we, we, we did a, like a three day visit of, uh, uh, Armenia and that was very nice. Uh, but on, on, other than that, and, and I also visited St. Petersburg, uh, one time as a tourist, but that was it. Uh, I got to know Moscow really well. And, uh, I took advantage of the tickets that the KGB gave me to go to concerts, uh, uh, go to the ballet, uh, puppet theater. uh, And uh, and once there was an American theater group uh, that visited and they played our town. And I went to that one too. I guarantee you the majority of the people who who had tickets were KGB. So so yeah, uh, to me, everything was wonderful. you know, the, uh, the stores were the, there weren't a lot of goods that I would want to buy. And, uh, with regard to, I had to buy my own food and, uh, the, the supermarkets had two things on every day, like canned fish and uh, mineral water, but everything else, you know, you never know, you never know what they had. Uh, but the one thing that was always in, great supply and, and great variety and always fresh was the bread. The bread was done, made in factories and then shipped to these outlets. And, you know, there was never a day when there wasn't fresh bread because of, that's the, that was the staple of the, of the Soviet, uh, uh, the Russian people to eat. Um, I, you know, the, the relative poverty compared to even East Germany, I rationalized that away, but and that wasn't hard to rationalize. The Soviet Union had suffered so much in World War II; there were so many millions of people that died uh, in that war, and there was devastation all the way all the way to Moscow, where where the where the actually the German troops were stopped. But whatever was functioning in the industry up to that point on the way out, the Germans destroyed. So I rationalized it would we'll take a little time to, to rebuild all of that. So, um, that's, that was my impression of, uh, of, uh, of R- Russia, particularly in Moscow. Um, I had no social interaction. I wasn't supposed to, uh, you know, I, I, I interacted with, you know, pe- people who worked in stores or restaurants and, and so forth, but, uh, outside of the of KGB, uh, coaches teachers, trainers, I, I met no, no Russian people socially. And, you know, for a young, for a young man at my age, uh, going without a girlfriend for two years, that that was, that was one of the toughest things.
1: Yeah, I bet. Um, okay. So, so from the perspective of, you know, the, the KGB as an institution, um, you know, obviously they sent you to the U S to spy. Um, but do you know or were you aware of, you know, maybe some of the, the thinking of the leadership? Like, would they assign the most sensitive missions to, like, Russian intelligence officers? Or did it matter if someone had the skill set and and they were good to go, they would get sent on, on any level of mission?
2: Well, in, in our case, the illegals, uh, people who, uh, who don't have an official cover, Um, there weren't that many of us that they, that they sent out, uh, they preferred to recruit, uh, non-Russians to do that job because Russians have a hard time to, to not speak with a Russian accent. Uh, and, uh, so I met one other, uh, illegal, um, who operated in the U S under a different name like I did and, and he, he was German as well. I met him and uh, he, you know he lived he lived uh, his life in, in New York where I was but we had no, no clue that uh, uh, who, that there was another person. And the other thing is we weren't networked. This was not like a network of illegals that would work together. We were in isolation. As a matter of fact, there was a rule that was issued by the head of the KGB that illegals will never meet another KGB agent in the country where they operate. And I tell you, I was I was a state secret the moment I signed up, and I got I, I was told only what they thought I needed to know to do my job. So I had no names. Uh, I, I had I couldn't I couldn't betray anybody. <clears throat> uh, there were uh, you know everybody had a had a code name. Um, the only thing that I eventually shared with the FBI is like methods and operations and you know the type of person that uh, the, the KGB uh, uh, recruited to do that kind of a job. But I and I was left in the dark a number of times where I had to make a decision about something. If I had 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 a better background for to base that decision on, I wouldn't have made a bad decision, but you know, that's the way they were. So, um, uh, uh, but to answer that question, <clears throat> would they only give Russian nationals, uh, the, 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 the tough stuff to do with the important stuff? No, we were considered extremely important that I didn't know that either at the time they sent me, because in, in interviews after the KGB f- fell apart, um, there were a couple of uh, fellows who were high up in, in, in the Directorate S, the Illegals Directory, and they, they shared the importance of us being in the United States. And us being in the United States was just being there. Because during the height of the Cold War, <clears throat> there, uh, there were these spy. Espionage. There was espionage warfare, and uh, there were constantly Americans kicked out Russian diplomats because all the Russian agents, known Russian agent, agents, were diplomats. And then the Russia re- retaliated, and and there was some fear that it could, would get to a point where diplomatic relations w- would be broken off, and then the only folks that were operated as agents in that enemy country would be us illegals. And we were not told when they sent us that that would be a task, and we were not given any instructions, but I guarantee you if that, that had happened, we would we would have gotten our instructions. I don't I can't guess what they were, but uh, it wouldn't have been very funny and probably quite dangerous. So in the, the
1: past you know, two years or so, um, I've read several books about uh, you know, the cold war and espionage during that period. Um, you know, different agents would switch sides, uh, you know, um, going from the Soviet union to the UK or the U S or, or vice versa. Um, and then I'd written an article a couple of months back, uh, about the, the Orthodox church in Russia and how the leaders, uh, for years worked for the KGB. And, um, one of the, the source materials I used to write was the Matrokin archives from Vasily Matrokin, who was a, a KGB yeah. archivist. And, um, you know, he he went over to the UK and revealed a bunch of information. You know, he, he had documented uh, for years of, of sort of just taking information out of, I guess, you know, secured locations in, in Russia. And. Um,
2: uh, excuse me, let me interrupt you when you say a sure. bunch, a boatload. Uh, mm. According to eyewitness reports, uh, it, it, it took five suitcases to smuggle all that typewritten material. Wow. out. this was the greatest find in, in the history of espionage.
1: <clears throat> wow, so so then obviously within that, some of the some of the stuff I read reading the Matrokin archives talked about some illegals uh, activity in the 1930s uh, in Western Europe. Um, and it was really fascinating stuff. Uh, and ultimately, I think what it kind of concluded was that the the British weren't exactly treating the potential threat from the Soviet Union, or they weren't taking it seriously. And and um, KGB ah. agents were were able to, you know, get at least on the maybe on it was on the uh, security at embassies wasn't uh, up to par, and, and agents were able to. Break into things and, and get information that way.
2: You are so right. Uh, I'm currently reading a book that uh, that uh, has as a, its main topic an illegal who operated in the United States uh, during World War II. And in those days, the United States, and this is particularly about the United States, was teeming with illegals because security was uh, with regard to the Soviets was, was very, very uh, light. You know, the, the United States was focused on the Germans. And uh, so there, there were probably a couple of hundred illegals, you know, and, and they, they got away with all kinds of lying and forgery because, because the FBI at the time was a police force. They didn't even know how to combat espionage. Uh, The, if if you bear with me for uh, for five seconds, I'm going to get the book and read the title. Sure. Uh, it, this is called Sleeper Agent, written by Anne. This is a German name, Hagedorn. Hagedorn. H A G. E-D-O-R-N, it's not an easy read. He has a lot of detail, but it, 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 it paints the picture of uh, how uh, the, the Soviet agents were getting away with murder and were able eventually to steal the atomic secret from the United States. So you're right on the money. So another thing
1: that I, I sort of picked up uh, reading you know some of these books about sort of cold war uh, espionage uh that a potential risk from the side of the soviets uh sending agents into the west was that they would you know see that you know the the, the life in western countries wasn't so terrible and that there was a risk that they wouldn't want to go back into the soviet union is that accurate
2: um I'm not sure <clears throat> I this is a guess now because you know I worked with some folks who had been to the United States uh, you know as under diplomatic cover and obviously they all came back and they were very proud of uh, you know the Western clothes that they were able to take with them. Uh, you see the thing is when once you're in the KGB and you have you have experience uh, in the west you got to go to the west again be that as a courier or you know do another stint as a as a as a diplomat uh you know th- th- those the the ability to operate in in the west is, is an asset and why wouldn't they like why wouldn't they feel like really good about this? You know, you get you you get your cake and you get to eat it too, um, because you know they 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 were, were pretty arrogant and knew that they were very special and had had a very very good life in the country where they had you know relatives, a wife, and and children. And ultimately, Russians are always Russians. You know they. They don't they're, they're, they're clinging very much to their heritage. Uh, they are very proud, proud people. And uh, so I don't think that the guess that you just made is, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. No, no offense.
1: No, that's fine. Um, OK, so all right, so then let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what your experience is like when you got to New York and then maybe some of what you were doing.
2: Yeah. Well, as I told you, uh, the, the, the one, I didn't say that yet. The, the, the first year and a half, uh, the, the task was to, you know, become a functioning member of American society. That means get the, get the documents and get a job. So I, my first job was bike messenger in Manhattan. I couldn't, I couldn't come up with anything else because, um, most, most jobs, uh, required some experience or maybe a resume or were subject to a background check or were uh, limited to members of a union and the unions were very uh, picky who they let in. So Bike Messenger was, was phenomenal. First of all, I was paid on commission. So I got I made enough money in my first month to be able to rent an apartment and not have to uh, rely on, on KGB money to, to operate in, in New York. And, uh, so I did that messenger job for two and a half years. And then, um, the plan was for me to get a passport and, uh, then move to either Austria or Switzerland and open up a, a business. And then the KGB would funnel some money, you know, put a lot of money into that particular, uh, company. And within three, four years, I would go back to the United States as a wealthy American. That was a brilliant plan. It just failed because I messed up the passport, uh, application. I wrote something that made the receiving clerk, uh, get suspicious. You know, I, there was a, Question about what's your profession, and I wrote messenger. And then there were two fields that were optional. Where where, where do you think you're going, and when you think you're you're leaving? And I left them blank. So this guy looks at it, and he was sharp enough to say, "My God, here's somebody who makes only minimum wage, and he he doesn't know where he's going and when he's going. There, what does he need a passport for? So uh, the fundamentally, I. I had to find a way out of there and, and and not leave my my application my documents there. That that's a very tense moment and you know people should uh, get the book if they want to find out how that happened. Uh, but I I got away with it. Uh, but I now I couldn't I couldn't become rich. Okay, so plan B was for me to go to college. So I did I, I entered college and uh, got a uh, bachelor's degree in business with a specialty in computer systems and I got myself a job as a programmer and and I did really well and uh, um, I was still working with the KGB when I had my first management job I had a very very good career as a as a manager and eventually executive what I did uh, for the KGB other than living in New York, which is what, what they were mostly interested in. Uh, I, I worked as a spotter, particularly when I was, uh, uh, in college, you know, I, I, I studied, you know, my, the, my the fellow students to see if they might be good, uh, um, good candidates to be recruited. They had to, you, you had to find out an angle why they would be a good candidate in you also have to figure out they might wind up maybe in the military or in government or in positions where secrets are kept, that kind of stuff. So uh, I profiled probably a dozen of them, uh, and uh, I never know what the, the Moscow did with with that uh, um, with that information because, I never got any feedback on anything. They was just like silent. They just took what I gave them, and that was the end of that. And ne- never said anything about my reports on what Americans thought about certain events and international events, uh, which I had to periodically write. Uh, I believe they were more uh, they were more um, valuable than the reports that the diplomat spies wrote because. I was a member of American society, and they were looking at society from the outside. They never knew what it took to get a job, to, to rent an apartment. And they just were not—so so that I did that, and I had a couple of special assignments that required travel outside of the 30-mile uh, perimeter that the diplomats could not uh, leave. Unless they had permission from I guess the State Department, and so these these two I, I, I could travel around the country freely and and that uh, uh, that was very useful and there's there's an episode in there that is also absolutely delicious when I had to travel to California to look for a person who I found uh, and hint hint. Uh, he was uh, he was a deserter from the KGB. I didn't know it at the time. And one other thing, uh, I was assigned a military object that I should uh, um, periodically visit, just observe from a distance, and see if if I see if I notice any any uh, any anything that might indicate that they're preparing for war. That object was a. Uh, sort of a harbor, uh, a, a naval base sort of called Earl and it's in, on the shore of New Jersey. Uh, I had some training in, in, in identifying ships from a distance based on their silhouette. I never noticed anything, but it, it was interesting. Uh, I found out afterwards that, uh, the KGB actually made every single person who was working in a foreign country, uh, watch a military object, uh, that, uh, the campaign even had a name. Uh, It was called Ryan. I don't it was an acronym, but I don't know what it stands for in, in, in Russian. So that was pretty much all I was doing in the, the last time I was in Moscow, that was eight years into my, into my 10 years of spying on behalf of the KGB. The last time I was in Moscow was, uh, 1986, I, I left the KGB in 88. Uh, I was asked to do some industrial espionage. And so, uh, if I could get my hands on something in information technology that uh, could not, that was on the do not sell to Eastern countries on that list. And I, I did steal some software, doubt that uh, this was very useful. It was very popular software that uh, was used in in those days to help uh, companies run their business. Um, And I think that wasn't very useful because it requires a certain structure of of the company and it requires sort of capitalism. But that's what I did. And and, and now I'm at the end of that list. There isn't much, there's nothing else there.
1: Experts say that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over two-thirds of the globe's corn reserves, and over half of its rice and over half of its wheat. But when asked about it, China lies. One China expert says that they, of course, will never admit to something like that. Well, what does China know that we don't? When it comes to global food shortages, China is the canary in the coal mine. You see, China is the world's number one importer of food. They rely on the rest of the world to keep their people fed. So they can't afford to mess up, or there will be riots, civil panic, or even worse, over a billion people won't have food to eat. What does this mean for Americans like you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why it's a smart idea to stock up on a kit of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling for Patriots survival food kits. It's hand-picked in the USA the kits are compact and they stack easily. They have different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. And their five-star reviews on the website rave about the flavor and taste. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriot Survival Food by typing in the code RECON at checkout. Just go to 4Patriots.com and use RECON to get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriot Survival Food. That's 4Patriots.com. Use the code recon. Okay. So, uh, you mentioned that you stopped working for the KGB in 88. Um, did you just, you decided you didn't want to do it anymore? Or like, were you sort of, you know, disillusioned with, uh, you know, what, what what your mission was, uh, you know, or, or you you preferred to live in the West. Like, what was happening
2: in uh, well, your thoughts? Well, okay. uh, Let me just <clears throat> answer <clears throat> one question you didn't ask, uh, because you probably that's it, a question that is tough to to uh, get to. I thought I was a failure as an agent, simply because you know they didn't get me that background. What what was important to them? So. Uh, I thought I was a failure because I was never able to get one state secret out of the United States I wasn't even close to one <clears throat> and I and I what, uh, and I couldn't make uh, friends of people who had state secrets because you know of my low position in society uh, at the time I quit I was um, <clears throat> my my hardcore communism had disappeared uh, you know I was more of a socialist um, and I but i, I Embraced what they called the convergence theory in those days. Uh, this was developed by uh, social democrats in, in Western Europe, who figured that, uh, you know, eventually o- over time, communism and capitalism would converge and build a, sort of a, a a welfare state. You know, where the good parts of communism, where the government takes care of the people. Uh, Merge with the good parts of capitalism, which is and was clearly much more productive because of competition. And I started believing in that because I saw the difference. I knew the difference, how how poorly the East German economy uh, was operated, and how how well competition actually made you do as good as you can, and you, because you're incented. So, but but I was still a patriotic East German. And I thought, you know, with the right leadership in place, we would eventually, you know, together with the Soviet Union, build uh, that, that socialist, I think, now paradise on earth. My decision to quit the KGB had something to do with uh, something I had never experienced uh, up to that point. And it's the, the four-letter word L-O-V-E. You know, I I had been in love with ladies, but that's not the unconditional love that I f- felt for the first time for an 18-month-old child that I had fathered a girl by the name of Chelsea. So she was so pretty. She still is. She is now 36 or 37. Um, so she's got had these great big brown eyes and uh, and a great smile and curly hair and i just like felt so much in love with her and now i'm in a quandary because i knew that my time in the us was limited you know the kgb sort of hinted at maybe a dozen years and uh i it was getting pretty close to that time it was already 10 years and uh, and i didn't know how to take care of this kid. I knew one thing that if, if I left her and her mother, she would grow up in in poverty because mom had only four years of schooling. She was, uh, she came to the U S from, from a very poor country in South America, Guyana. And uh, so, and I, I, and when, when, when I was forced to make a decision that had to do with the, the FBI, no, I'm sorry, the KGB being un, under the impression for, for whatever reason, I don't know, neither the, uh, the FBI can't guess that I was under observation and was about to be arrested. Somebody must've said something and you know, maybe just like, I don't know, they took that very seriously and they activated uh, the emergency procedure. And that meant get out of the country as quickly as you can. Uh, and that, that would have meant leaving the child I love. And I stalled for several weeks, and I don't want to get too much into detail of the stalling, it will make the interview too long. But at one point I couldn't stall anymore because they broke the rule not to have another agent get in touch with me in the United States. And one day that happened, it was still dark on the subway platform. And this little man in a black trench coat, idles over to me closely and then whispers in my ear, you got to come home or else you're dead. Okay. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> now I, I am very stoic by nature. Obviously I, I was, it, it, it really bothered me and I went emotionally numb and intellectually I was still functioning and I was trying to figure out what to do now, back and forth. Go, stay, that's a decision. The decision is now forced on me because uh, I couldn't stall anymore. And uh, there was another decision that was not derived at logical thinking because logically everything that was good for me was back in in East Germany. Uh, I would have returned as a conquering hero. I had a lot of money saved dollars in Moscow. They promised me a house. And uh, and I would li- live a very very privileged privileged life. Uh, and what ex- what I could have ex- expected is to be arrested in in the U.S. Or if I uh, ignore the KGB and and tell him that I'm not coming home, they could have interpreted this as uh, defection. So the only thing that countered all these the good ones over here and the bad ones over over there the only person that countered all of this and, and the emotion that I had was my love for Chelsea and one, won. It was a totally irrational decision, but it, it was meant by my, you know, by my subconscious because that's where, that's where the, where the, where love is, uh, uh, very strongly represented. So and I stayed, so, uh, and, um, I took some measures that I wouldn't for the next three months that I wouldn't be, Oh, now people ask me, so how did you get away with it? Well, I, uh, I came up with that brilliant lie that I, I, I wrote my last letter in secret writing telling them that, uh, you know, I, I, I know I'm in trouble, but, uh, I can't come because I have HIV AIDS. And as you probably know, that was a death sentence in those days. And they, they, uh, clearly didn't want to have somebody with that disease. In, in their country or in East Germany. So they, and they had no reason not to believe me. A, they knew everything would be good for me back there. And B, they knew in somewhere in my file was brutally honest because I had made it a, a habit to admit mistakes that I made that only I knew that I made the mistakes. Okay. So, um, but I still had to make sure that uh, they believed the lie. And so I, uh made certain that i would not be predictably in the same place at the same time uh more just more more than once because that gives gives people the opportunity to wait for you right and after three and i did you know i checked for surveillance uh, there was no sign that either the fbi or the kgb was uh was following me I, I, I put some put some things in my apartment uh, to uh, uh, where I could really know that somebody had a, a, a rifled through my belongings, and that's not the proverbial hair on, over the over the door. Um, I think it, that's in the book as well. So, and after three months, uh, I felt I was safe, and, uh, and and fundamentally I was right because many years later I found out that that they actually went to my German family and told them that, that I passed away from AIDS. And so then I went to Chelsea's mother and I said to her, we were married. I said to her, all right, now we, now we can work on, on the American dream sort of within a year. I think we I'll have enough money. We can buy a house. And within a year we moved into a house in the suburbs and the rest is, uh, my American history. I, at that point had, uh, become a private citizen. I suppressed the whole notion that I once was a spy. I was just like, at that point I was already a manager or maybe director. I was in corporate America. I was making good money and I just needed to make more money and really, uh, support the family as best as I can. Uh, we had another child and then something happened that was triggered by Matrokin, the fellow that you mentioned, because he took uh, uh, all that all that information that he took with him. There was a massive number, but there was there was a, a small section that says there's a fellow named Jack Barsky, who is an illegal who lives in the north, Northeast of the United States. And so it happened that nine years after I resigned from the KGB, the FBI said hello. And that was one of the best moments in my life, even though I initially, when they said, well, FBI, we, we want to talk to you. I went like, oh my God. And the fellow who said that, I want to talk to you, told me later on that my, my face went white as the driven snow. You know, all the blood was leaving my brain. <laughs> but instinctively, I knew how to behave. So they sat me down in a car and drove me someplace. I didn't know where, but it wound up in a motel. But within uh, three, four minutes, uh, in that vehicle, I asked them, am I under arrest? And they said, no. Well, that gave me hope. And a couple of minutes later, I, I asked the, fam- made the famous, que- I asked the famous questions, question, what took you so long? and I put a smile on their faces. And because instinctively, my instinct has always done very well for me, instinctively I knew I must be likable because you there's less of a chance that somebody will harm you if they actually sort of like you. And so I cooperated fully, and after six months of very detailed debriefing, and uh, uh, a couple of psychological tests and a bunch of things and passing a lie detector test. Uh, I was told that uh, there's a path for, to, to obtain citizenship, which I did, I, I became a citizen seven years ago. And uh, I tell people nowadays, uh, today, as I'm talking to you, I am legally, uh, intellectually, and emotional, emotionally an American. I have German roots, which I can't t- deny, but I would not want to move back to Germany, even if you gave me quite a bit of money. Uh, I, I love this country. I love the way. I love the American people, and uh, uh, I uh, I am a great fan of the U.S. Constitution. and And I know, and I know that my life would have uh, gone pretty bad if I had gone back. I would be miserable either now in Russia or in Germany where there wasn't much use the United Germany for an ex KGB agent. So uh, I'm I'm very happy with my way, my life ended and it's not quite ending at, at its end yet because I'm still busy doing a whole bunch of things. One of them is doing this podcast and I've done quite a few. We're working on a on a mini series based, based on the book and based on the other podcast that, uh, was released last year is called the agent, which is really, it's a really good audio version that has voices other than me. And it's isn't just me telling my stories, other people talking about how they related to me while I was, uh, uh, KGB agent. And my daughter is, is, is on in there, and the KGB, and uh, the FBI agent who, who was the lead on, on my case is on there. So it's it's really very well done, the agent, and it doesn't cost you any any money to to listen to it. Fantastic.
1: Fantastic. Um, okay, so then so, let's uh, let's switch into sort of uh, you know yep. what's happening now uh, with Ukraine and Russia. Um, and then, so I, I want to ask, I mean, obviously, you had a very specific uh, focus when you were working in the KGB. Did you ever, um, you know, in any of your training, did you ever learn about, uh, like, information operations? Or or did, is that something that you learned about later as far as, like, what sort of propaganda the Russia wants to sort of push in the West? Uh,
2: no. I, I was not... Uh, encouraged to participate in what they call active measures, like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, seeding, uh, 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 phony information, false information in, into the West, uh, and, you know, just like in, in trying to sort of, uh, split the country because some people would believe it and some won't, wouldn't. And, and also, uh, you know, um, uh, try to, uh, undermine the, the, um, uh, I'm looking for a word and undermine the trust that, uh, Americans had in their government and in, and, and in the, in their, the way that the country was run. It wasn't very successful, but I didn't, I had no idea that this was going, going on. Uh, I found out th- by reading the Matrokin book, as I told you before. Uh, uh the ktb shared next to nothing with me well practically nothing what what others were doing no idea okay um okay
1: so then all right so let's talk about uh, russia and ukraine obviously there's uh, a ton going on there um you know the, the russians initially went in in 2014 and took crimea and then uh parts of eastern ukraine uh in that same time period. Um, and it's, it's been a brutal war that's been, uh, in full swing since, uh, February, uh, 2022. And then, uh, most recently, uh, there was a, a situation with, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner group, uh, it was a very sort of short-lived mutiny, uh, where it, it looked like for a moment, they were marching on Moscow. Uh, there was, a, you know, some combat took place there. There were some helicopters that were shot down. Uh, but then they just, like, sort of abruptly turned around. Um, so, like, what are your overall thoughts on the war, and then in particular the yeah. situation with Wagner?
2: Well, first of all, I need to <clears throat> let you in on something <clears throat> uh, that, uh, if I don't tell you, you couldn't guess it. I actually knew quite well that Ukrainians and, and Russians are, didn't like each other very much, and, that, and that's putting it mildly. I <clears throat> befriended uh, some a couple of people in, in college who uh, were originally from the Ukraine. And boy, oh boy, I sensed that I had to be really careful not to <clears throat> say anything nice about Russia because they hated Russia with a vengeance. Uh, and I didn't know where that came from but I had the ability to do some research and <clears throat> and found out that the hatred was primarily generated by an event that took place in the 1930s called Holodomor mm-hmm. this, this is when Stalin uh, wanted to collectivize agriculture across in in the and uh, the The breadbasket of uh, of Europe was was Ukraine and has been Ukraine up until the war, very fertile soil and larger farms and farmers uh, owning owning land. And they were very, farmers are very attached to the land. And and I I know this from, I also once uh, watched an original Russian movie with subtitles and where the hero, a superhero, Always touches the earth to get his, his powers back. So there's a very very strong attachment of, of the Russians as as well as the the Ukrainians to the land, and uh, they did and they didn't want to be collectivized. And then Stalin decided to to forcibly collectivize them. So they they, they sent uh, troops and KGB who conf- confiscated all the grain and starved to death over two million Ukrainians. And when you do a little bit of research, you you uh, get, get uh, you <clears throat> you'll find eyewitness reports of these atrocities, where you know uh, there, there were cases of uh, cannibalism, where parents ate the children that died from hunger. Wow, It's horrendous. And so this kind of a, this kind of event. Uh, leaves such a deep mark, and, and it, it is carried forwards in, for generations and generations. And so, when when the war first broke out, and everybody thought it was a was going to be walking apart in a park, I, I became very popular at this in, in those uh, in the first half year of the war. Uh, I was on cable TV, cable news, at least once a week. But I I told them initially. You got to be a little more cautious here because the one thing I know, the the, the Ukrainians will not keel over and play that. They will fight. They will fight like hell. Well, I guess I was right. They're still fighting like hell, and the the war is now it's a it's it's at a standstill. It's a tie. Uh, the Russians can can penetrate further, but the Ukrainians have a hard time. Uh, pushing the Russians back. And I can, I cannot see that, uh, uh, that stalemate ending anytime soon. Uh, I don't even know if, it, uh, if it has an end, unless both sides are getting so tired, uh, too many people dying and, uh, in both, both economies suffering, That maybe just maybe with the right negotiator, they come to some kind of a negotiated end. But that's a prayer. That's not a prediction.
1: So, uh, you know, one thing that uh, people are constantly talking about in the news and and articles um, is that, you know, they say things like sort of Putin's... um, Sort of political life in Russia is tied to this war or to the outcome of the war, uh, and that if if the Russians somehow suffered a you know sort of catastrophic defeat on the battlefield, that that would spell the end for uh, Putin's tenure in Russia. Do, do you think that that's accurate?
2: Not necessarily. They, the majority of, of Russians, uh, and that's not an opinion. I think this this has been in the press where the you know the. Uh, Russian people are being asked, you know, are you behind Putin? And the majority of them still are because he you know, speaking of brainwashing. He managed to, uh, to manipulate the, Ru- the Russians so expertly because there is something in the, in the Russian national DNA that is called fear, fear of invasion. Because historically the Russian state was always at war. They, they, they were fighting the the uh, the the, uh, the Scandinavian intruders, uh, the Vikings. Uh, they were fighting the Turks. They were fighting the Germans. Obviously, when when they invaded uh, the Soviet Union, they they were fighting uh, Napoleon, and they were fighting you know the uh, the, the hordes for, from the from from the far east. Uh, they were always under siege and, uh, and World War one and two did a lot of damage. And, and the the Russians always knew that uh, you you know, they would, they would be invaded over and over again because they had, they were so rich in natural resources and Putin actually, you know, he, he played that to, to the extent he could. Okay. And so Russians know that, Putin so far has been their savior, so they haven't been successfully invaded, and they believe that NATO was preparing an invasion, and they started with, with, Ukraine, with Ukraine. And I think, still think, they believe it. And I, I, I am, I would predict that he would not lose his job uh, unless there's an unlikely event uh, that might take place, which is an assassination. And I have said so far a conspiracy uh, of the folks that have power under Putin is, I think it's not feasible because the same way that Stalin died in his bed, Putin is is ruling with an iron hand and the, the folks under him, they don't trust one another. So for conspiracy, you have to like talk, and if one of those people that are in the conspiracy blabs, all the others are dead. So that's why Stalin died in his bed, even though there was people who who really wanted him dead, but they didn't act. So these are obviously all educated guesses. No expert can predict what's going to happen, but you know I've been I've been pretty good with these educated guesses because you know I have background.
1: You know, one of the um, the sort of interesting parts about the, the short-lived mutiny of, of the Wagner group was that uh, Prigozhin came out and stated that the the reasons that the Russian government gave to the Russian people for invading Ukraine was, was bullshit. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious about, uh, and then of course there's been some level of, of Popularity for of of Pergozin and the Wagner group within the Russian population, um, but you know when when Pergozin says something like that that the you know the reasons they gave are bullshit for the invasion. Um, do you think that has any effect on the on the Russian population? And then also, uh, for some reason, there seems to be a a percentage of folks in the West who are. Uh, at some level, pro-Russian or, you know, maybe they're just anti-Western. So that sort of pushed them into the Russian camp. And do you think that has any effect on how people view the the war?
2: Well, first of all, Pr- uh, uh he, he sometimes goes overboard. And I think he went way too far with with, <clears throat> with that march onto... On to, uh, towards Moscow, and that statement uh, that that war should should have never been started, and and it was under false pretenses. I think he, he got carried away, because fact of the matter is he still is ready to to fight that war. So if the war is not worth fighting, why not disappear real quickly? With regard to the Russian uh, people being very sympathetic to Prigozhin and maybe even that uh, that. Uh, aborted uprising, maybe some, but not the majority. And uh, you know, there may be n- now, and, and we don't even know uh, what's going on. You know, there's, there's constantly contradictory statements coming out of, out of Putin. Uh, first he called Prigozhin a traitor and, and then he said, well, he's just stated recently that uh, he would allow uh, his groups to continue fighting as a unit. When he first said they would all be distributed throughout the, the, the Russian army. I mean, there's so much going on, and, and a lot of it's just purposeful misleading and creating just like uh, a, an, an environment <clears throat> where you really don't know what the the truth is. And even, even, even Putin doesn't know all the truth. So we call this, an, in espionage terms, we call this the wilderness of mirrors where you don't know what's up and down. There, There's lies, propaganda, uh, misdirection. And because in a, in a war situation, you are fighting. So you will use all the weapons that you have at your disposal, and that includes words. And uh, I, one more thing I wanna volunteer, having been a, uh, a deep cover agent, I would bet any amount of money that there are moles, there, there are Ukrainian moles in the, in the Russian government at some level, and there are Russian molds in the Ukrainian government, and and those molds, when they report, you don't know if they report the truth or they have been turned. So it's it's a royal mess, and and unfortunately, American politicians and, and American journalists, you know, are naive enough to uh, fall for the news that they like, like when Prigozhin was marching. They thought, man, this is the end of Putin, and you know, just like, just stop the wishful thinking, and you know, be extremely suspicious of the information that's coming out of there, um, and you know, I, I, um, I, I'm just like, when, when here's one example, uh, when, uh, when it was stated that uh, Prigozhin was in in Belarus, because the president of Belarus had said so. I was I was on TV uh, the, the the day thereafter when every every TV station reported that as fact and I told I told the station that I was on that I don't believe it I I would believe it when I see proof and we're still playing the game now where's Prigozhin nobody knows he's someplace and then they and then and then the Russian TV had a had a um, uh, a video of, of a raid that the Russians supposedly uh, conducted in Prigozhin's home with some odd items found there. I guarantee you that was st- staged. <clears throat> Maybe not the home, but the odd items were staged. You know, this is, <laughs> it's sort of funny. It's not funny because uh, there's a lot of people who are suffering and not, not just Ukrainians, but also Russians whose family members died and Russians who who can't get enough food to eat anymore, you know, I don't know, outside the big cities, uh, it, it may be, the, the life may have turned really, really, really hard. And if, if things like, if electricity goes down, and they may not have enough uh, material to replace what, what, what's not working anymore. So it, it's, I'm laughing because, you know, it's bizarre. And, uh, you can't, you can't digest something like that unless you find something to laugh about and, uh, but the, but the suffering is tremendous. And the last word here in that respect, I want to say is the, the one thing I'm most concerned with is that, uh, um, there is not an accidental release of a nuclear weapon, uh, because when the tensions are very high, could happen. It it almost happened three, di- three times during uh, the Cold War. <clears throat> and the the second reason why I'm concerned is I know a little bit about the sloppiness of uh, Russian I- uh, industry, Soviet industry. The the Soviets never produced anything that they could, you know, you know, machinery, uh, even weapons and tanks, whatever that that were acceptable. In the West, even their their uh, the rockets that they used to beat the United States to be the first in space were of substandard quality. They made it work somehow, and uh, and and even even today, you know, the Russian economy is the strength of the Russian economy is their resources. Period, not what they make. And so I'm worried about uh, the uh, the quality of the Russian nuclear arsenal arsenal and how well-maintained it is. Uh, So this—and we need to be, uh, in in the United States and in NATO, very careful not to go after Putin personally. He doesn't like it. And if he ever were to go insane, it would be if somebody personally attacks him. And it has happened many times already in the West. Stop it. It doesn't move the needle of the war one way or the other. That's political grandstanding. You know, it's, it's quite clear that Putin is a war criminal. You don't have to go in front of a microphone and say it out loud. It doesn't make any sense to me. And that's the truth as I know it and I will stick to it.
1: Yeah, it's it's it seems so strange um, because there's so many folks you know, in particular with the, the situation with Pogosian and Wagner's uh, sort of mutiny, is it seems like it's it's all very confusing, and I, I feel like the people who sort of have expertise in in Russian and uh, leadership and and all that, like they'll they'll sort of give their takes, and at the end say, it, but it's really hard to tell what's actually happening. Um, and then you, you know there are. The Russian generals who haven't been seen since the mutiny, uh, in particular, I'm thinking about uh, Oleg Shavokin. Um and it's just it seems all very confusing and, and almost unconventional even for Russian standards. Uh, you know, over the past 20 years, uh, f- people who were just even critical of Putin uh, publicly were, you know, just ended up dead or you know fell out of a window or something like that. So then to to have Pergosen so brazenly oppose him and not end up dead just seems like a shock almost.
2: Well, um, if if Putin has a rational moment, you know, Putin uh, has worked closely with Prigozhin uh, over the years. He was, you know, that he started, Prigozhin started as his cook, personal cook. Uh, And so that means Putin must have trusted him because, you know, he did uh he had a personal cook to avoid poisoning um uh, so uh you probably know that Prigozhin owned i don't know if he still owns it supposedly it, it was taken over by the russians by the russian government the the internet research agency yeah. which is which is a bunch of uh, geeks who make fake news, produce fake news and and plant them in western social media. You know there's a, I am uh, very well connected with uh, cybersecurity uh, experts, including some in the FBI. There's some guesswork that uh, that uh, about 20% of the stuff that's on Facebook is actually produced by the Internet Research Agency. Uh, and 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 uh, the other thing that um, uh, Prigogine has been able to do, he's, he's done, he did a good job in Sudan where Russia was. Warring, and in one of the African countries, I forgot which one it was, but you know where, where um, Russia has access to natural resources, so he has been an asset, and so he, you know, Putin hates criticism, mind you, uh, and if if that was truly an attempt to go after him, which prigozhin actually denies, he always talked about, you know, the two generals, Gerasimov and and uh, Shoigu uh, doing a piss poor job, and he, went, he wanted to get rid of them. That sounds more uh, probable and believable, because he was on that rant for several months. Uh, so it, it is quite possible that Putin, even though he was out in public playing the strong man, believed that that Puglossian wasn't going after him. And that may may, may have saved Krogohen but you know he's not out of the woods and I I, I, I predicted that if he showed up in the Ukraine uh, he would not be alive today he would fall out of a window so it's, it's a it's a totally bizarre situation can't, you can't make that up and, and the, the, the truth the entire truth will never be known it will die with with, uh, with some people passing away and it has died with some dead people already. Yeah and you know
1: the uh essentially Putin sort of I mean I think Progosin was a successful restaurant owner in St Petersburg and and so he was sort of successful uh to an extent and then obviously that he became elevated when he got associated with Putin. Yeah. Uh, but, but the the Wagner group has been sort of very essential in enacting Russian foreign policy in Syria in in uh, several African countries uh and then you mentioned some of the, the resource rich countries one is the Central African Republic uh the Wagner group has taken over uh, gold mines diamond mines uh, yeah. and other other sort of resource resources uh and essentially all that gets funneled back to the Russian government um so the Wagner has really become an important part of Russian foreign policy and then it's just like it just, yeah. in, in some ways, adds to the confusion of like, what's going to happen? Is is Wagner going to fall under the control of some some government group, or are they going to continue to operate, you know, somewhat independently? Like, it's 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 all a very confusing uh, situation. And um, I guess, and in, in even though like, it's not funny because people are dying and there's a lot of misery around it. It's it's just would be interesting to see how it plays out.
2: Yeah. And you, uh, you stated that more eloquently than I did with regard to the role of the Wagner group. Uh, you, you, write are right about this. I, um, I was a little bit on the surface there. I, what you, what you just stated, I read also, but I forgot. <laughs> this, this specific- yeah. I've, yeah. I've been looking into some of their activities
1: uh, particularly in Africa to, you know, for an article. Um, that I do some writing and, and some of the the writing that's come from uh, my company has been featured in, in uh, different uh, publications around the world, in okay. particular regarding the Wagner Group and, and some Russian uh, related stuff.
2: All right. Good for you. <clears throat> yeah.
1: Um, OK. So, um, yeah, it's it's been great to talk to you. Uh, you know, I, I know you're busy. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate you taking out the time to come on here. Um, uh, like I mentioned earlier, your book was fantastic. Uh, I, I consume the audio version of it, uh, but I assume that there's hardcover and, and Kindle as well. Uh, and I, I would uh, encourage the audience to go get a copy of it if you want uh, the full story of, of Jack's life, you know, uh, in the KGB and then coming to America is he goes into much greater detail and it's really fascinating stuff. Um, yeah.
2: yeah. There's, there's paperback and don't, and I want to repeat the, the podcast, the agent, which can be accessed uh, on, on all the major uh, streaming media uh, for no money.
1: Okay. And is that uh is that like a series or it's just like, it's one episode? Part, kind
2: of it's a 12 part series uh, where this is, Professionally produced by a Hollywood-based company, and uh, it, in the 12 parts, there's there's a narrator, and then there are interviews with me, my daughter, the FBI guy, other people, and 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 then it, the the narration you know pulls it all together, and there's also some stuff that I can't put in the book because the book I write from my perspective but then the narration, uh, points out that my mother t- till the end of her years was searching for me. She never knew what, what happened to me, uh, and stuff like that. And, uh, and on top of it, 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 it even has music that was composed specifically for that, uh, podcast. It's I'm very proud of it. And I, the the reason that it was so good was the producer is is a phenomenal guy. This, this, Podcast got a what they call a Webby award for for best podcast in its class.
1: <clears throat> oh, that's fantastic.
2: Yep, it's, it's really good.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I, I'll take a, a, a listen to that. Uh, I wasn't aware of that.
2: We didn't do a good I job left.
1: advertising, so <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, um, yeah, so that, that's all good stuff. Um, again, you know, check out Jack's book, check out the podcast. Um, and uh, and for anyone who sort of wants to just keep up with you know what you have going on, uh, do you have any social media you want to give out or you know place where you kind of just post updates on your thoughts or anything like that?
2: Well, the the most active social medium that I use is LinkedIn, but uh, I'm on Facebook, but rarely I, I have not. Uh, done much I have not done anything with Twitter and and my Instagram is at this point has not been worked on for a while but but I'm going to change this because I'm preparing actually to to um, have my own podcast uh, and that's going to be focused on I, I give you uh, an example of, of a presentation that I just developed and it's called uh, um, the presentation is called uh, Applied Spycology, and I'm, in, that, in that presentation, that's about an hour, I get into some situations and what I learned as a spy and how I operated and, and, and what I learned doing this and, and some of the talents that I have and how they are applicable in real life. And, and this, uh, this, this podcast, I'm not going to be focusing not necessarily on things like that you – you talked about and I don't think I'm going to interview a lot of authors or stuff like that, but, but, uh, I, uh, I'm going to be focusing on, uh, working. So with, uh, with, uh, young men who is a really good audience for me. And I have, I have mentored young men individually, and this is going to be sort of like almost like a, a class away from class. I have collected a lot of thoughts about, you know, what it, what it means to, to be a man, what it means, what it, what it means to me to be able to cry, what it means to be, to be able to mourn, what it means to be able to me to be afraid and how, how, how you, how you treat a woman and all that kind of stuff. and, And all the lessons that I've learned from failures, uh, I can, I can. I can do, do this really well and I've done it already individually. So, and in order for that thing to get started, I'm going to be more active in social media. So, uh, coming to a theater near you soon, hopefully within a month or so, then we can get started on this. It takes a little bit of startup capital that we're about to raise. And then, uh, we're going to start working on this.
1: I sounds fantastic. And you know, the, the, uh the sort of mentorship of young men is kind of an important piece, in, you know, in today's society. Um, and yes. and uh, I <laughs> yes. just kind of feel that there's a, there's folks who are sort of occupying that space that aren't giving the right messages. I feel so. I, I think it would be good to get, you know, people who know what they're talking about in that space. You know.
2: Yeah, and I have a lot of good friends and acquaintances among mature, very successful men, and every time I talk with one or many of them they say the same thing that you just said, you know, they were looking at the world and said, this, this is uh, This is going to go the wrong, this is going the wrong way. And, you know, and those young fellows feel sort of uncomfortable because they're not aligned. The, the emotions, their, uh, their thoughts and uh, their spirits are really not aligned with their biology. And there are some people who, who can, Successfully change gender, but most can't. You know, we 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 made. You know, we, there there are male genes. There's male behavior, and this is. I mean, and if you uh, you men if you are told to you know, be softer and gentler, and not be a warrior, not be a protector, uh, and not be a little violent, um, and, and not defend the country the way we used to. Then we're looking at a society in decline, unfortunately. And I don't, I don't point fingers at any individual. You know, I know that there some of the, the the spokespeople for for this gender fluidity absolutely, honestly mean what they say. But I, and I would not, you know, be, you know, aggressively aggressively arguing against them. I would just argue what I know. And uh, and not go personal, which uh, which is always wrong. But uh, th- this is this is not going in the right direction, and you know, I guess you you agree with based on what you said. So thanks for let, letting me say that. And uh, that uh, it's a, so, so, sort of a slightly uh, tricky thing to pull off. Like, like Jordan Peterson has done it quite well, but. Um, I don't know how he gets away with some of the things that he's saying because he's quite aggressive.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's tricky because if, if you say something that's sort of goes against, uh, you know, whatever the, the sort of concept is and ideology and, and the direction it moves in, you you, you kind of get attacked and and yeah. Um, You know, it's 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 sort of become ugly in in many ways, but uh, the conversation needs to be had, I feel. um, Uh,
2: You Yo, I I have trained myself with my and that's with my German heritage. That's that wasn't easy. I have trained myself uh, not return ugliness with ugliness. I I I learn I, I get I get intense, but I don't scream. You know, you, you you sense my intensity, and in some of the topics that I uh, talked about, I get louder and stronger, but I don't scream, and I I don't use uh, personal attacks or bad words. Uh, all of that anger, hatred, and all of this is banned from 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 uh, myself. It's a better way to live, and it's a better way to get along. And it it I believe it's the better way to influence people rather than, you know, you know, m- making the divide that it, it already exists even bigger. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Okay. That was, uh, I mean, we started at, uh, at, when did we start at four, right? Uh, we started at five. We started at 5. That was only 41 minutes?
1: No. Oh, minute. oh, oh you're an hour behind me. No. Um,
2: yeah, so we started at 4. Yeah, so it's. Yeah, it was, 4 years was, time, was, yeah. Uh, Not bad.